Today we're looking at two potentially dangerous topics. These are not dangerous in themselves. They're dangerous when you and I respond to them wrongly. And those two topics are suffering and holiness. We were working our way through a short sermon series from the book of First Peter. And as we saw last week, the context of Peter's letters is suffering as Christians. And so I want to take a little more time this morning, a, a look at suffering, because one, you and I naturally want to avoid suffering, but we cannot. And secondly, I believe that if our society continues down its current path, Christianity will be accepted less and less. But this is nothing new. In the first half of the book of Acts, you see the following instances of suffering in the early Christian church. The Jewish religious leaders arrest and beat the apostles because they continued to talk about Jesus. And the religious leaders had thought they had done with Jesus when they killed him. But they weren't. Then you've got the stoning of Stephen, where Stephen is murdered by the Jewish religious leaders. You've got Saul throwing Christians in jail in Jerusalem. Now, if you notice, this is Jews opposing Jews. While some Jews gladly embraced Christianity, Christians were considered heretics by many other Jews because they did not agree that Jesus was the Messiah. They did not believe that anybody who had been crucified could possibly be the Messiah. And there was more. There was the death of James and the jailing of Peter. Now, it was Herod who did both of these, and I think it was more political than religious for him. And then there's a whole set of troubles for Paul on his first missionary journey, again, often instigated by Jews. But in addition to these particular events, there was more widespread trouble for Christians as well. In general, I believe Christians were considered odd by Gentiles. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you know what Gentiles mean. It's New Testament reference to anybody who wasn't Jewish, which in that day was probably 98-plus percent of the Roman Empire, not Jewish. Christians were considered odd by Gentiles because the God that the Christians worshipped <clears throat> did not have a temple, and he did not allow his followers to make statues of him. Now, this is when, at a time when almost all other religions in that day had temples and priests and statues. So Christians were considered odd. But that's not all. Christians were also considered offensive. They were considered offensive because God did not allow Christians to worship or even to recognize as legitimate the dozens of other gods that were worshipped by the majority of people. If you stop and think of what we just read a little bit ago in our catechism. God is going to be, says to be worshipped alone, that there are no other gods. Any other thing you might call a god is an idol. It's a distortion of worshiping the one true God. And so God didn't allow Christians to even recognize as legitimate all these other gods that other people worshiped. Now, in that day, there was a kind of freedom of religion. You were free to, to worship the God of your choice, but it was also expected that you would show respect to all the gods that the other people worshiped. And, and in general, you showed that, that respect by taking a little pinch of incense and putting it in the fire in front of the statue to that particular God. And the other part is that Christians 
could hardly avoid this, they could not avoid the situation. Gentiles had household gods, and they had business gods, and their cities had city gods. So anytime you went in the house, anytime you went into the business, anytime you came into the city, you're expected to do the pinch of incense to acknowledge or worship that god. Well, Christianity taught, and we saw some of this as well in our catechism, that all of those other gods are worthless. Okay, that there's only one true God. So you can see why someone who did not agree with Christianity could be offended. Well, for today, for us, coming out of a culture that in the past was more Christianized, but having for a good while moving, being moving into what is now a post-Christian culture, we're just now beginning to experience this kind of suffering as Christians. More and more, Often, today, Christians are considered odd or offensive. Now, the New Testament never treats any suffering lightly, but it also does not respond to suffering with fatalism or fear. Many cultures have a a fatalistic approach. They basically tell you, look, suffering is going to happen. There's nothing you can do about it. Just got to make your way through it. I call the Western, modern Western culture's approach fear because it basically says, Avoid suffering at all costs. In contrast, the New Testament looks at suffering for Christians with a different perspective. New Testament tells us that God is with us and God is in control and God is working all things together according to his plan, that God loves Christians, that God is using both the many enjoyable things that he provides for us and the difficulties that he allows but limits to change us, we're also reminded of this, that the time that we spend on earth is so small compared to an eternity of enjoyment in heaven where we're with God face to face and all the obstructions we have right now in our relationship with God will be removed. So the Christian life is a life of trusting God and depending on him, but too often, You and I doubt God's goodness when we encounter suffering of any kind. So that's just a little bit of a talk about suffering. Before we move into our verses today in the second topic of holiness, I'd like to take just a minute and review what we looked at last week, review the major ideas that were in the first part of chapter 1. So if you put up that slide. Peter begins by encouraging his readers to praise God for his mercy. He reminds them and us, that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope and into an inheritance. He reminds us that we are being guarded by God's power, but it's very clear from the New Testament as a whole and from what comes next that this doesn't mean that God has promised no problems. Because then he says, you are grieved by various trials. And so here's Peter's first reference to difficulties and suffering but he doesn't stay there. He's, he does, he's not going along and all of a sudden he drops into the suffering and he gets stuck. He comes back and says, oh no, you love God and you believe in him and you rejoice. Again, this mix, the Christian life is a mix of both the good that God gives us and the difficulties and suffering that we deal with. He then says the prophets prophesied about this hope. This hope is the living hope that he talked about earlier, the inheritance that God promises. 
which is the good news. The word gospel means good news, and so it's an announcement of what God has done for us. And so as you look at this list, you notice that there's good before and after Peter's reference to the trials and the difficulties. Today we're going to be looking at 1 Peter 1, verse 13, through chapter 2, verse 12. We're only going to read a portion of that. So remain seated, and let's read together from the screen, 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 19. Let's read. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So you notice at the beginning of verse 13 the word therefore. It's a little English play on words. Whenever you see the word therefore, you should always ask yourself, what is the therefore there for? It's a pointer. It is pointing us back to the first 12 verses. So in essence, in verse 13, Peter is saying, in light of all the good that we just talked about in the first 12 verses, set your hope on God's grace. And he starts into his list of encouragements and commands. Do not be conformed. And then in verse 15, we see God's command for us to be holy in all of our conduct. And that's where the sermon title comes from. And in the New Testament, in the Bible, holiness has the idea of moral purity. Now, you and I make choices all the time. We choose what to do, what to say, what to think about. It's so common, we don't even realize that we're making choices sometimes. We're just doing it. Well, God's command to us in verse 15 to be holy means that you and I are to choose to align. So we align our choices and our lives with God's definition of holiness. So this morning, as we look at our verses, we're going to work our way through the verses today, and we're going to do two things. We're going to see first what God has done for us, and then secondly, we're going to use the commands that we see in these verses to help us understand holiness and what God is talking about. Now, before we get into it, let me just mention this two-part pattern, what God has done for us, what God is doing for us, and his commands is a common pattern in the New Testament. Sometimes you might hear it called the indicatives and the imperatives. For those of you that like to be, is that alliterative? I forget my English proper stuff. It starts with an I in both of them. Okay, it's a common pattern. We look at what God does for us first because it provides the context for God's commands. He doesn't just give us the commands out of nothing, out of the blue, but it also shows us how God provides for us. Now, this is important as we still think about this two-part two pattern. This pattern also reminds us that you and I do not obey God in order 
to be given good things by God. That's the basic message of any man-made religion. Here's a list of things you do, and if you do them well, whatever God it is that you're doing this for, if he or she recognizes this, then maybe they'll give you good things, maybe even give you what you want. That's not where this is going. God gives us good gifts, you can call it his grace, to enable us to obey him. God gives us good gifts to enable us to obey him. So let's look at this list of what God has done for us that we find in our verses. So start in verse 13. We see that God will give us grace at the revelation of Jesus. Now that word, that phrase revelation of Jesus is talking about his second coming where he's going to be, where he's going to reveal himself again for Peter and for us. That's a future event. Hasn't happened yet. Whenever you see the word grace, think gift. So he's talking about some gift that's going to be given in the future. But realize this. Verse 13 comes right after verses 1 to 12. And in verses 1 to 12, what you see is that in verse 13, what he's pointing to in the future is not the only grace that God gives us. It's not the only gift. God is giving to us a lot. So in a sense, what he's saying is there is a final installment of God's goodness and grace and gifts that he's going to give us, and it's going to be a biggie. It's going to be a big one. But it's the final installment of all that he's giving us right now. He's giving us to us right now in our, in our lifetime on earth. But again, as I said, it's a pointer to when Jesus comes again. That's going to be the start of our, our time in heaven or in the new heavens and the new earth where there's no more sorrow and no more pain. Then verse 18, God ransomed us from the futile ways of living. Now, by the way, I looked up the word futile in the dictionary because sometimes I call it futile. Well, it turns out either pronunciation is correct. Okay, so sometimes you'll hear me say futile, sometimes futile. But let's look at the word ransom. The word ransom is important. It has the idea that we were slaves or prisoners of war and God paid for our freedom because that's, that happened back then. Various armies would, would move around and, and try to take over certain areas. As they did, they would capture people, sell them as slaves. And if those people had relatives or friends that had the money, it was possible they could be bought out of the slavery. And that's the picture here. Except in our case, it's not a physical slavery, it's spiritual slavery to sin. Jesus bought our freedom from sin by sacrificing his life in our place, by suffering the punishment that we deserve. And so he, he gets us freedom, but this freedom is not a freedom for you and I to do whatever we want. It's freedom for us to delight in God and obey God and to depend upon God. So now let's look at the word futile. It means worthless, useless, unsuccessful, and ineffective. Now, this understanding this is not good for your ego, okay? Because here's what it means. A futile way of living is any way of living, whether it's religious or not religious, that does not have God at its center. And here's the thing. All of us naturally live in a futile way. We all do. Okay? Now, this is a setup for verse 21. 
This is giving us reality so that we understand that the good news really is good news. Verse 21, through Jesus, we become believers in God. So it's humbling to admit that you and I do not choose Jesus because we're so smart and good. (laughs) No, Jesus comes to us. Jesus starts the relationship. Jesus is the one who reconciles us to God, which is connected then to verse 23. We are born again. Now, notice this is passive. God is the one acting, and the result is that you and I are born again. That is, that we are born spiritually. So you can see how this connects back to verse 21. And it also reminds us of what you see the first time you ever see the phrase born again, I believe, is in John 3, when Jesus is talking to one of the religious leaders, Nicodemus. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, if you want to see God, if you want to have any chance of having a relationship with God, you have to be born again. That's what he's talking about. Then one of the verses that Bruce referenced, chapter 2, verse 5, we're being built into a spiritual house. Again, this is passive. God does the construction with us. But I take two, two thoughts away from this. One, it means we're not alone. Okay, you don't build a house out of one brick. You need a bunch of bricks. We're not alone. And second, God is making us part of something that is bigger than ourselves. And then chapter 2, verse 9, we are chosen by Jesus. We're chosen by Jesus to be a royal priesthood, to be a people for God's own possession, and then he goes on with that list. But again, God chose us because he decided to love us, okay? not because we're so desirable or so good. And so as you look at this list, in every one of these things that we've, in the list we've looked at, God is the one choosing God is the one acting, and we're the ones that benefit. So with this in our minds, now let's look at the commands that we're given in these verses and see how they can help us understand God's holiness, what he calls us to. So again, we have another list. So in verse 13, got three different commands. Prepare your minds for action, be sober-minded, and set your hope fully on God's grace. I take it from these three that the Christian life is not a passive life. God calls us to be 100% engaged. And he also calls us to think and to discern. Not just a little bit of thinking, but deep thinking and discernment. Why? Because we're surrounded by thoughts and philosophies, by messages that take us away from what God says, from his truth. And the only way for us to counter that is to depend upon God. And again, we see there's a little pointer, as we saw in the previous list from verse 13, an eternal perspective. Don't just look at what's happening right now. Look at life. Look at your life here on earth with an eternal perspective. Then verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Okay, the ego is going to take another hit in this verse. The Christian life is a life of putting off and putting on. And it is a life of putting off and putting on because you and I come in, if you are a Christian, you come into the Christian life with desires and with patterns of thinking that are not holy. They don't line up with God and who God is. And you, the put-off part, and the, you see with the former ignorance, speaks of our way of living for ourselves. 
Now, nobody likes to be called ignorant, but before God comes to us and begins a relationship with us, we are ignorant in a real sense of who God is and even who we really are. Because it's only in light of God's revealing himself, what he gives us in the Bible, that we see who we really are. Then verse 15, be holy in all your conduct. The way this command is worded does not leave out any part of your life. He says all your conduct. So given what I talked about about choices earlier, you and I are to choose God's way for how we live and how we think and how we speak. But we need to remember it's out of our hearts that we choose. So we don't just need holy actions. And again, that's a thing that happens with man-made religion. We build this definition that's all outward of what a good person is like. And we can take Christianity and turn it into a man-made religion. I know I have without even thinking about it. Growing up in the church, I had this picture in my mind. This is what a good person is. This is what a good person does. And here's the list of all the things a good person doesn't do. I am so glad that I don't do those things. Oh, was I wrong? Okay, just look at Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, here's God's commands. And here's what you think it means. Oh, no, it's not what you think it means. It's all this. It's in the heart. And as God began to reveal that, I saw, oh, yeah, I have really missed. So this, this conduct, it isn't just outward, it's from the heart. We need a heart that's being changed, that's being made more pure by God, that is more in line with his character and his desires. Now, when you grasp that, you realize that there's a gap. There's what God calls us to and where we are. So as Christians, as we look at our lives, we're we're not going to see perfect holiness in our thoughts and words and actions. So what do we do with the gap? We listen to what God says. God tells us that Christians are accepted in Jesus and are credited with Jesus' perfect obedience and that God is working in the lives of Christians. Here's the part that I have struggled with. He works at his pace, not mine. God works at his pace in the lives of Christians to change us and to begin to narrow the gap, to begin to make us more and more holy like he is. Now, we don't ever close, God doesn't ever close the gap while we're here on this earth. But here's another thing about this gap. The more you and I see our faults and weaknesses, knowing that God has covered our sins and that he loves us, the greater we realize God's love and goodness is, how he cares for us. Then verse 17, he goes on. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. See that word exile? That tells us that this is not our homeland. This broken earth is not a Christian's home. Christian's home is the new heavens and the new earth that's going to come. So we're here kind of as visitors almost for a time. And that word fear, conduct yourselves with fear, is shorthand for fear of God. So he's saying live your life and and. Ask God to work in you so that you, this is my understanding of this, so that your life is full of reverence for God, amazement 
at God, what he's doing, how he loves and cares, delighting in God, being in awe of God, and then lastly, the fear part. I'm not going to let it fall off the table. Our fear of God is amazement and delight and awe, but it's also fear. And it reminds me of a couple of places in the Bible where we see why we should fear God. One, and it's actually a reference in our verses, because God's going to judge all mankind. And he tells us very clearly he cannot be bribed. He will not sweep anything under the rug. He will not ignore or forget anything. It's all going to be covered, and it's all going to be judged. Not just actions, but thoughts and words and intents of our heart. It's all going to be judged. That's a good reason to fear, since we know we have failed greatly. But then the other one, it's kind of interesting, and people might kind of wonder what is going on here. God also says he should be feared because he forgives sin. He knows we need help, and so he's offered that help. He knows we have no hope on our own, so he offers hope. He forgives. Then chapter 2, verse 1. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. That word malice means evil intent. And if you and I stop and think for a minute, all of us have done that. There have been times where we so desperately wanted to hurt somebody else, to see them suffer in some way. That's malice. Now, you look at the list. Did I put the whole thing in? No, I just did the three dots. You go back and look at that. Evil intent, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. That's us naturally. That's us. And just say no doesn't work. That doesn't get it out of the way. Okay? It doesn't. That's why in the New Testament you find put-offs and put-ons. This is a put-off. This is what we come into life as naturally, the put-ons include love and patience and forgiveness and giving. And when you look at God, that's what you see. Love and patience and forgiveness and giving. And as you see God working in your life and the life of other Christians, if you are a Christian, you should see that same thing happening, being built in us, that it's not just the evil intent and deceit and envy and slander, but there is love and patience and forgiveness happening as well. Then verse 2, Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. Spiritual milk is talking about God's truth. And what he's saying is hunger for it. And you might be thinking, well, you know what? If I'm really honest right now, I don't. So turn it into a prayer. And say, God, would you make me hungry for your word? And then he talks about the fact that the life, Christian life is a life of growth. It's a life of change. Then verse 11, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Christians still have the flesh. It's what the Bible calls our self-centered nature, the selfish nature, the rebellious nature, the flesh. So it's another put off. Say no to the selfish passions and say yes to God's way. You're getting this very clear picture from these commands, how we come into the Christian life, what we come in with. A lot of things that need to be put off and be replaced and a lot of things that aren't there that need to be put in. And then verse 12, keep your conduct 
among the Gentiles, really against among everybody, honorable. To me, it points back to where I started with our choices. Look at your choices and how it is you're living. So this morning, after we looked at suffering, we looked at God's gifts, his goodness, what he's doing, how he is providing, and then his commands. And what he wants us to do is embrace both. Man-made religion would have you embrace just the commands and say it's by keeping these commands that you actually get the good gifts. God says, oh, no, no. I give you the good gifts and I give them to you first. I also give you the commands. Embrace both of them. And then as you embrace them, as you and I strive towards holiness, because we're not there yet, we also are striving knowing that we live in dependence upon God, knowing that we're accepted by God, that God is changing us, and that we're ransomed by Jesus' blood. We're rescued by Jesus. What that moves us to is thanks and praise and delight. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for how rich it is, how you, you in these verses show us so much of what you do for us. And you also show us what you call us to and what you are working in us to make us. We ask that you continue to do that. We ask that this morning that you would help us to see the greatness of your love, the wonder of your plan. And Lord, you do deserve all the credit, all the honor, all the delight that we have. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been talking.